Listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast. Et Wells se termine à l'arraché, à la peine. Oh là 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 là, vraiment le couteau entre les dents pour Wells. Et quand on songe qu'il a lâché avec une relative facilité Gols en point de mire, mais impossible de le rejoindre je pense pour Delgado et Tunis, mais en point de mire de là c'est au-dessus. That was Johnny Welch of Denmark heading to victory at Le Puy de Dôme in 1988, the 13th time in Tour de France history that the race had visited the volcano, which sits above Clermont-Ferrand in the Massif Central. Little did we know then, it would be 35 years before the tour would go back. Francois, the first thing I think of when I think of Le Puy de Dôme is just how much it dominates when you're in Clermont-Ferrand. You can see it from a long, long way away. It's a bit like Mont Ventoux in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, it's even more spectacular. But it's like almost an urban uh, mountain. I mean, we have one in Marseille, you know, with Notre Dame de la Garde, or Paris as Montmartre. But it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's huge. It's wherever you are in Clermont-Ferrand. And sometimes uh, you walk down a street and it's just in front of you. And it's, it's quite impressive. It's so impressive that actually, you know, long ago ancestors of, actual, you know, nowadays Clermont-Ferrand people, they, they built temples on top of it. On top of it, it was kind of a sacred mountain, you know. Uh, they've actually found a, a, a huge temple there, a gold temple. Gaulish temple and then Roman, you know, temples and stuff. So yeah, it's it's there. It's massive. It's impressive. It, and it's, it's you you can't. I, I don't know how to put it. Maybe your our basic instincts, you know, uh, are revived when you see it from so far and you know in the middle of nowhere and so close to a town. I mean, it's a volcano in the first place. So maybe you know our reptile instinct thinks, ooh, this this thing could blow up any minute. We want, but uh, well, what's going to blow up probably is the race. It's there's no risk there's no risk of it erupting no no not at all. I don't think any of this volcano in the what what we call the la chaîne des puits the puits range is uh, has been extinct for many 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 years you you never know of course with the earth can you know so these days you, you could have surprises but I no I, I don't think there's been an eruption of the any of the puits in Auvergne for tens of thousands of years well that's a relief I know what you mean though Francois it's like the Glastonbury tour There's something, uh, you, well, you said reptile, but there's something sort of that prehistoric instinct, the, the highest point on the horizon. It says something to us as, as human beings, I think, doesn't it? We've got to get up there and see what it's like for a start. Because you can see it from everywhere around and the road is so unusual. I mean, I'm talking only really from uh, what I know. I've never been to Le Puy de Dome because it's been so difficult to um, go up there. You can't really go up there by bike, can't go up there by car. I've never been able to go up, but a sort of corkscrew road that makes its way up to the top, uh, very different to any of the other mountains the Tour de France does. And I suppose when you look at how Le Puy de Dome came to be part of the Tour de France in the first place, it was 1952. The race organizers introduced summit finishes to the stages for the first time. The first one was Alpe d'Huez, which Fausto copy won. Now that was famously to try to um, promote Alpe d'Huez as a holiday destination, skiing destination. But Le Puy de Dome Well, it could only be a summit finish up there because they couldn't go up over the top and down or turn round and come back down, could they? So um, in a way, 1952 was the first opportunity for the Tour de France to even go there. And of course, Fausto Coppi won there too. 
as you say, it's one of these iconic, like, Mont Ventoux. Mont as you say, is about, was also kind of a sacred mountain. And also, uh, you know, lo local, the local population have tried to walk up or uh, th that hill for, you know, ever. Like, you know, you want to see, you, because you can see the rest of the world. And uh, I, I suppose that, you know, whether you're up there, probably our, you know, ancestors realized that the, the, the earth is, is round and not flat. But <laughs> anyways... Christian Prudhomme has been an innovative race director. He took the tour to La Planche de Belfi for the first time, the Col de la Lose, Plateau des Glières, Lasset de Montvernier, the double ascent of Alpe d'Huez on the same day a decade ago have all rejuvenated the tour's approach to the mountains, which had become a little formulaic. And he's embraced France's other mountain ranges too. The Vosges, the Jura and the Massif Central are all motifs of a Prud'homme tour. But the installation of a rock railway meant that the Puy de Dôme was out of bounds. It narrowed the road and the priority to conserve the environment has kept the tour away. Even ordinary cyclists can't go up as and when they want, let alone the Tour de France. But it's been no secret that Prudhomme has wanted to take the tour back to Le Puy de Dôme ever since he took over from Jean-Marie Leblanc in 2006. In fact, it's become something of an obsession. So perhaps we should be calling it Le Puy de Prudhomme. The fans won't be on the volcano on Sunday, which means it might have that almost ghostly quality we saw when fans were kept away from the Casse Desert on the Col d'Isoire a few years ago. But it will nevertheless be spectacular. Here's the race director, Christian Prudhomme, voiced, of course, by François Thomaso. C'était en tout cas l'un de mes objectifs puisque j'avais vraiment écrit, j'ai vraiment écrit quand je suis arrivé chez ASO en janvier 2004, quand on m'a donné l'ordinateur. Going back to Puy de Dôme was one of my objectives. I wrote it ever since I was asked to become the director of the Tour de France in July 2004. I wrote Mission Puy de Dôme and I added, you should never stop dreaming. Of course, it was a major goal, but it's a goal that you should see in relation with Col de la Loze. Puy de Dôme is the roots of the tour, is the legend of the tour. It's a place that made me dream when I was a kid, but I'm also looking for locations that can make today's kids dream while still being aware of Puy de Dôme. In 2012, I designed a provisional tour route which included all the intermediate mountain ranges. We went to Grand Colombier and Planche des Belfilles, and I wanted to include Puy de Dôme, but local authorities refused at the time because they were bidding to become UNESCO World Heritage and they didn't want to take the risk to arm Puy de Dôme. What they didn't know is that we capable of adapting. 30 years ago, the logic was that the whole caravan should be able to go through. It's not the case anymore. Now, if there are 20 k's on the 3,000 k's of the tour where the fans can't go, but the riders can, we'll go. The road is 3.50 meters wide, it's not much, but it's much more than Alpe d'Huez on race day. What changed since 1988 is that they put a small train with two openings where we'll be able to post team assistance. It might have looked like an impossible situation the handle, but you have to remember that the last time the tour went to Puy de Dôme in 1988, when Johnny Welts won, thousands of people had gone down the slope in the same time, and it was an unbelievable mess. After the train was built, we thought, when there's a will, there's a way. We needed to convince the people in charge that we could go there, and we needed to convince the UCI, because only one car per team will be allowed at the top instead of two. 
After going to the Granon last year and nobody could see that we had been there the next day, we knew we could climb Puy de Dome without harming it. What matters most when we draw the Tour de France route is the narrative. We want to create myth, resurrect others like Puy de Dome and create new ones. It's a lot of work for our teams because you need to set up equipment in two or three places instead of one. But what matters is to give the mountain back to the riders and to be able to show it worldwide. If your dreams don't scare you, they are not big enough. A former Liberian president said this, and that's my answer. It's a climb like no other. It turns right continuously with a constant elevation of 12% during 4Ks. There's no other climb like this. But we decided to take it from Clermont-Ferrand because the roads are wide and lots of people can watch the riders before they tackle the climb. I was afraid there might be a bit of frustration for the fans and not being able to go on the climb, but actually no. With mobile phones, everybody can watch the climb now. And it also solves the congestion problem that we had in 1988. I can't wait. Maybe it's written, Francois, that the last winner on the mountain was Johnny Welch, a Dane. Jonas Vingegaard, maybe we'll take that as an omen. I don't know. But looking back a bit more at the history... It's been won by some great climbers, obviously. Federico Bahamontes, the Eagle of Toledo, won a mountain time trial there in 1959. But the most famous incident, really, on the mountain is captured in a brilliant black-and-white photograph of Jacques Anquetil and Ramon Poulidor going shoulder-to-shoulder on the climb. That was in 1964, at the peak of their rivalry, really. And the thing is always the way with these stories... Neither of them won the stage that day. Julio Jimenez of Spain won the stage, but that picture is one of the most iconic of the entire history of the Tour de France, isn't it? Yes, to the point that I, I, I more than once wanted to try and find out Julio Jimenez and ask him the question, you know, because this guy won the, 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 that iconic stage and nobody cares about him. So, yeah, that, that shows, you know, how the, the Tour de France is also a legend, a myth, you know, like a kind of a fairy tale because you 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 recall what you want you know keep what you want from it and that, of course the, the 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 GC struggle at the time and battle was between Anquetil and Poulidor plus their rivalry was you know coming to a, a yeah at its uh, probably at at its at its top at the time and uh, and it was all there you know the uh, the blonde guy the, the 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 kind of fair hair you know dark guy the uh, the you, you could you could tell even if they're both struggling they're not struggling the same way like uh, Raymond Poulidor is bent on his uh, uh, handlebars and going it you know the, the hard way like you know like the, the farmer he was and you know n- not going to give up and, and you can tell the elegance of Ancotil even though on his face you can see that the elegance is fading fast you know and it's all there in a, in a, in a very simple picture and uh, yes uh, I mean lot, I'm sure lots of people who haven't seen the stage on TV or of, of course weren't there have the impression have the impression just because of that picture that they they've been there they, they know this stage and then and they, they, they you know they've been the witnesses of that race 
So it was a Spanish 1-2 on Le Puy de Dom in 1964 with Julio Jimenez winning the stage ahead of Bahamontes and despite what Francois said about Poulidor's style on the bike suggesting that he was struggling more than his great rival Onkatil, he actually finished 42 seconds ahead of Onkatil and cut the overall lead that Onkatil had over him to just 14 seconds. Was Ramon Poulidor the eternal second as he became known going to finally win the Tour de France? Well no because the last stage a time trial from Versailles to Paris fell in the favour of Onkatil, the supreme time trialist but Poulidor had given absolutely everything on the volcano and ended up finishing just 55 seconds behind Onkatil in Paris. Louis Ocaña won there twice and Eddie Merckx, I mean the great Eddie Merckx in 1975 really when his chances of winning the Tour were fading rapidly. It was the final blow really to his Tour de France yellow jersey ambitions wasn't it because he was punched by a spectator that day. I mean, it's, it's another one of the kind of kind of iconic moments, and it, it was, of course, what well, everybody said. Then this guy was nobody really knows. I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we mentioned Poulidor. We know the the, the French uh, are known for, you know, their their the yeah the fondness for uh, beautiful losers. So so we like uh, you know Poulidor more than we do uh, Ancatil and. Uh, and we like Thibaut Pino, even though he doesn't win because he, he, he you know, he, he's close to winning. And so I suppose Eddie Merckx was everything the French fans hated, like we, we hated Lance Armstrong. We were right this, that maybe uh, sometimes we, we 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 didn't like Chris Froome very much. I mean, the fans. I'm talking the fans, not me, you know. But uh, yeah, there's a kind of dislike for the uh, you know, overwhelming winner and. Uh, but yeah, but that punch was was a kind of as you say the fa- the, the fatal blow. Like you know, the the the, the crowds of the Tour de France tell, telling, you know, through that uh, stupid man, uh, st- it's finished. You know, uh, Eddie, and it's kind of yeah, it's kind of a sad ending for you know for the, the the special relationship that Eddie Merckx had with the with the Tour de France, and it's also proof you know once again and back in 1975 how dangerous that race that race could be if fans really misbehaved and it reminds us what a, a daily miracle the Tour de France is. important news of all, unofficially on our watch, 50 seconds elapsed before Eddie Merckx crossed the line. There's footage of Eddie Merckx being punched by the spectator on Le Puy de Dôme in 1975 on YouTube, and you can clearly see that the spectator reaches out from the crowd with his arm and catches Merckx on the side, perhaps the lower back, maybe around the kidney area, and you see Merckx recoil in pain as uh, he feels the effects of the blow, and, well, The fans around the man in question kept him there until police could uh, arrest him and he was a 55-year-old local called Nello Breton and Eddie Merckx asked for charges to be pressed and later on in the year there was a court hearing in Clermont-Ferrand where the judge found Breton guilty and ordered him to pay Merckx damages, but damages of one symbolic French franc. For Merckx, it was the end of his Tour de France reign because even though there was a rest day the next day, the following day's stage went from Nice to Pralou and it was a very difficult stage and he was feeling the effects of the bruising and his great Tour de France reign was over. Bernard Thévenet won the Tour. It was the 96th and last time Eddie Merckx wore the Tour's yellow jersey. 
I think I, I went up there because I was there in 1988 for the Tour de France when the last time the Tour uh, went there and Johnny Welts uh, won the stage. I don't have any memory of it at all. It's a total anticlimax, I know. Probably they already, I can't remember that, but my, I'm sure that had I gone up, I would have re uh, remembered. So I suspect that at the time already, back in 1988, the press room was downstairs in Clermont-Ferrand and we were not allowed to, to go up. And that's probably why I, don't, I can't remember it. Well, let's hear from Johnny Welch then, who was riding for the Fagor team at the time, a Danish rider, the stage winner, got away with Rolf Goltz a German rider with a super convex team. And I remember that day very clearly. Pedro Delgado was in the yellow jersey. And little did we know then, that would be the last time that the Tour de France would visit Le Puy de Dome for 35 years. Can you remember much about the climb itself, what it was like to ride? It's obviously, it's pretty hard, isn't it? Yeah, I can because I mean, I, I, you get uh, you get kind of into. I mean, always when I went into the stage race, normally I I grew stronger into the race, and I, normally coming out of it strong. And and for me, it was uh, I think at 16 or 17 stage, and and I kind of uh, was not uh, was not absolutely not worn out, but I just uh, remember we there was Central Massif, which is a horrible area. And in the summer, it's warm and the roads are heavy and. And I just remember we can flat out like a tour stage. Everybody wants to be in the break. And uh, and I think this first 60, 70 kilometers, I was just sitting on the wheel there and I feel sorry for myself. And I said, fucking hell, this cannot be that. I just hang here on the last wheel with you, crying. And I feel sorry for yourself. You, you better move your ass to the front and be part of this uh, game here. So then I went to the front and I started to follow the moves. And uh, there was a lot of people up the road squatted all over. And and, and I, I, I think I see this with the uh, World Girls was up the road. I, I tried to bridge up and I, I bridge up. And so I said to Roger, listen, we're going we gonna to smash it now because if we take some time, then they, they will give up uh, and it will calm down behind and they will let us go, you know. So we were chasing very hard in the beginning and we, we just uh, actually get that gap, gap and then they, they come down behind and said, okay, they will to be toasted out there and then uh, we will drill them in again. And, and that was kind of uh, how it uh, developed then. We, we had to ride hard and that was kind of, we made a gentleman agreement said, okay, this has to last. We stick together to get to the bottom of the climb. Everybody takes a share and then it's the strongest man win, you know. So we kind of make the pact that no nobody attacked before we get into the climb because then we will start to look at each other and they will vanish. So so we just uh, said, okay, we, we, we agree, the gentleman agreement, nobody attacks each other. And that's also kind of, we went into the climb and then we was, that was premium was up. And then that's also why we kind of rode side by side up the climb there because, uh, yeah, now we knew that we were going to make it. When you got onto the bottom of the climb, you and Rolf, uh, did you know at that point we've got enough time here? It's between us now? Uh, yeah, I think we were uh, kind of told there from the car that uh, now we, we just didn't uh, fall off the bike, we'll be kind of good. Because, of course, uh, the Gardos team has chased the whole day and they were running out of power. Everybody's kind of was uh, on the knees uh, at that point, so there was nobody needed to pick it up. It was a dirty job there, so pretty sure that we, we will make it to the top. Yeah. And what was your tactic? What were you thinking? How were you thinking you would get rid of him? 
Nobody says that, that when you kind of get to there, I mean, every, every pill stroke in a way in these stages, uh, you, you, you measure each other and it's very psychological and it's, it's very mental. And, uh, and, and I started to figure uh, yeah, that we are not far from each other and, and that day on the, on the side of strings. And, I, and when we start to climb, I was kind of had the feeling that he was uh, start to struggle. And then, and that's why I said, I mean, you do front wheeling a bit, you know, to see if he responds when you just pick it up a little bit. And then I, I, I felt that he was kind of struggling to to respond with pacing him a bit. And so so that was, I felt that I was I was in a good mood there. But of course, when you then attack, then you are so in so much pain that it's just, uh, I mean, in the, whatever situation you just hit, this is uh, totally out of proportion. But I got the gap and I had to continue. <laughs> so once I did lance it, I had to fulfill it. So, and then he cracked. So then it was kind of also, yeah, to give you so much morale. Yeah. But uh, it is kind of a, you, you sit with people for three weeks and you see them every day and uh, what we do be doing. And then of course, when you're two, two, two men together in a, on your own, there is, it's a different scenario. And I mean, first a bike rider, I'm sure he's much better bike rider than I was, uh, but maybe even clients, I would, I would, I would be better, more climber than he was. Can you remember much about the climb itself, what it was like to ride? It's obviously, it's pretty hard, isn't it? Yeah, the thing is, is uh, typically in that way, there's no switchback, you know? So you cannot, when you can, you make the hold there, you cannot see if you're well off or somebody's coming two slopes down or something. You don't have idea. You just, uh, yeah, you, you just have to go as hard as you can because uh, in these days we didn't have a radio. Does that make it harder in a way? Because you don't have those frames of reference. You don't, you don't necessarily know where you are in relation. I guess you couldn't feel where Rolf was. You knew he was behind, but perhaps didn't know how far behind. I think that's just a stress factor, yeah. Because you, you, you do have no idea you're doing good, you're doing bad. Uh, if you could just have a place, idea of where people are compared to you, then you can have a dosification of your, your effort. But uh, yeah, that was not there. That was just not doable because you cannot see the people. You cannot see people at any point. So you just uh, sprint to the line. You said that you you weren't steeped in the history of cycling, but you must have appreciated the, the significance of winning on a mountain like Le Puy de Dome. You know, did it did it change your career? I know you you moved on to the Onsay team the next year. You got twenty two contracts for the Criteriums. I mean, that would have been reasonably lucrative at the time, I guess. But did you get a sense of the importance of what you'd achieved afterwards? Yeah, I did. I mean, I mean, you have to say to the Frenchies, they stick to to the the the, the heroes, and 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 it, and it follow me everywhere in France and I, I remember the speaker Daniel there and it's just uh, every time I mean this is my time as a writer and as a sports director uh, ever since it's always been mentioned he's always mentioned it at the start the finish and I mean they stick to the to the, the heroes and and and, and they just followed me this has followed me it make me definitely also a better person in the way that I, I you know you, you in your self-confidence you grow a bit and and yeah, I mean, definitely you turn into be a personality and not being, being just uh, out of the bonds there for, because it was something special. And, and, and I more realized it afterwards than when, when I was in it, so for sure. What are the chances of uh, another Danish winner? That would be fitting, wouldn't it, 35 years afterwards? It fits him perfectly. 
again, I think it's a, again, if he has an st- extremely strong team and they've shown that they can control the things and deliver him the way, I mean, I think uh, that's, 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 that's a big, big chance that it can happen again. Yeah, repeat. Anyway, well, how wonderful is that? I mean, that's fantastic for me. Uh, from in the same, again, I was in a, an amazing company with the people I wanted previously. And if he takes over, I mean, that would be a huge honor. Remy Cavagna of the Sudar Quickstep team was born in Clermont-Ferrand and lives in the city today. He spoke to journalist Peter Cosins for this episode about the so-called forbidden climb. Alpidome, c'est un peu notre notre cœur. Le cœur, il est Alpidome parce que c'est la vraiment la montagne qui au-dessus de Clermont-Ferrand, donc de la ville. Et pour beaucoup d'habitants, c'est so the Puy-de-Dôme is a bit like our heart. The Puy-de-Dôme is our heart because it's the mountain that stands above Clermont-Ferrand, looking down on the town. Many of the inhabitants are attached to it because it's a bit of a symbol. It's hard to say, but when I wake up in the morning, I open my window and there's the Puy-de-Dôme in front of me. And that's something incredible. And every day I'm, I'm able to go walking around the Puy-de-Dôme or cycle around it. For me, it's a point of tranquility. The volcanoes, it's our region, it's our heritage, it's just splendid. So what's great about Clermont-Ferrand is that there's flat. You can ride like you do in Belgium or Holland. You can do zero meters of vertical gain. But you also have the mountains, the Sancy, the Puy-de-Dôme and the volcanoes. And you can do a lot of that. For a cyclist like me, it's great. Because you need small roads, not too much traffic, not too many towns. It's also important for safety. And this place, the mountains are really something, quiet. When I go training, I always go there now. I always go to the mountains because I know it's hard, but it's quiet. And then there's the atmosphere. It's enough to motivate me every morning. It's something incredible. Well, there are several reasons, but the main reason is that it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and the road is really small, just two or three meters wide. Only one car can get through, so it's dangerous. You can't let the bikes go up with the cars. There are cars at the top, but they belong to the police or the guards, to be more precise. They're the mountain police, the Pidodon police. They're always watching. We can't go up there because it's forbidden, and also for safety reasons, because there are a lot of tourists, because there's a train going up. The train that goes up to the top of Pidodon is the funicular railway, and there are lots of tourists who take the train every day. So there are lots of agents up there looking out for people's safety. And then, of course, to protect the heritage, because there's something that, as I said, is magnificent. There's no rubbish, no bottles. You can run up it, you can climb it, because there are different routes up, but it's not easy at all. But I've done, I've done a lot of running up there, and I climbed it on a road by four years ago, which was forbidden. I went up early in the morning, I got about five on a summer morning, so there was no one there, no people, no problem. And I went and said to myself, at the top. Wow, that's hard. I never did it again until just a few days ago when I went up yeah, during the official reconnaissance for the Tour de France. Yeah, it was yesterday. Yes, I did it. So yeah, a really nice climb. It was really nice with the sun and the, thir- and the 360 degree view at the top. It's really magnificent. You can see all the volcanoes. It's great. The climb up the Puy-de-Dôme is the forbidden climb. Well, the Puy-de-Dôme part is only four kilometers, but before there's, there's a seven kilometer climb from Clermont-Ferrand. 
Then there's a short flat section, and after that you reach the foot of the Puy de Dôme. So all in all, it's 12 kilometer climb at an average of 70%, and the last 4K is the section that's closed with a small road is 4K long, at an average of 11-12%. So it's difficult because the road, road climbs at the same rate, which means it's 12% for 4K. It's always the same percentage. So there's no flat, so you can't recover. It's a steep climb all the way. And then in the last 50 meters, there's a little ramp at 17% cherry on the cake. Voila. This is Dan Martin, former Tour de France stage winner, of course, on the unique challenge of Puy de Dom. Not one that he's ever experienced himself. Yeah, it, that's a big unknown for everybody. But again, the weather can change a lot on that stage. I mean, I've heard that from people who've been on the climb in the last few weeks, when the sun is there, you, really, you basically bake because it's on a white, it's a volcano. So it's similar to Vontu. There's uh, the rock face each side of you and it just reflects the heat. And so the guys who struggle in the hot temperatures can really have a bad time there. And also there's no corners. I mean, it's a little, little known fact that like as a climber, generally you get a bit of a rest on hairpins or corners. It just breaks up, not just mainly mental, I think, but also physically you kind of, you do tend to relax when you hit a hairpin or something. It kind of, it just gives that little, like even one, two seconds of respite. Whereas Buda Dome is essentially I think I saw on the roadblock, it actually says four kilometers straight line to the finish. Because no, it's, it's, it's just a very light turn the whole way up to the finish line. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's going to make, that just adds another challenge. And that area as well, it's just such a, it's, it's all like relatively high altitude, which obviously plays a mental game. Really heavy roads and tends to be very hot. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a very challenging day, especially the day before the rest day as well. This episode of Kilometre Zero for Friends of the Cycling Podcast was made by me, Lionel Burney, and featured Francois Thomaso. It was produced by Will Jones. Thank you to Peter Cosins for additional reporting. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.